Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. So, we need a change of pace. Every week, almost every week, it's UFOs, UFOs, and UFOs, and more UFOs. And then political ranting, which is even worse. I don't know. I like the political ranting. Well, actually, uh, I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised, I might add, to see the response on the Paracast forums, Gene. I was expecting people to just open up the flamethrowers and tell us, no, don't do this. You promised you wouldn't do this. Don't do politics. But, you know, we had responses like one guy who said, normally I want to put my fist through the screen when I hear David go off on one of his political rants, but surprisingly, I found myself in agreement with him. What am I doing wrong, Gene? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe it is that people are slowly coming down to your point of view. Mm. They're approaching it because they realize that this country is in awful shape. The planet's about to self-destruct. And that angry human and those who sympathize with him, his fellow travelers, realize that the only thing we can do is make changes fast. Yeah, yeah. And not just say the word change, obviously, but actually try to promote and affect some change. I don't think that it's everybody's coming around in my point of view, Gene. I think people are just waking up and seeing the world for for what it is. When we talked about this last week, we talked about the topic of the economy. I I really try to keep politics out of it. You know, this is not something I want to frame in a political context. I think that it's just harsh facts of reality. And, and, And boy, since we did that show, we're seeing a, a domino effect around the world. We see that Iceland basically has just gone bankrupt. I mean, the entire country has essentially just gone under. And apparently they're appealing to the Russians for a financial save-the-day move. I mean, the Icelandic nation is turning to Putin in Russia, looking for money to bail them out. This is some pretty scary stuff. I, I, there's the issue of... Uh, you know, geopolitical strategy and, and a country like Iceland potentially being, for all practical purposes, in the hands of the Russians, that's a, we're, you know, this is interesting stuff. And I don't know that anybody saw that coming. There was some Icelandic online bank that apparently just closed its doors, leaving tens of thousands of English holding the bag. And uh, apparently the Icelandic government told... Uh, told England, well, you know what, we're, it's, sorry, just like, what? You've just closed, uh, you know, savings accounts for how many British citizens? Now you're just going, oh, well, gee, sorry, sorry about that. Oh, that was your money? Oh, oh, well, that's pretty scary stuff. And so, in just in the last week, the acceleration, and then, please don't get me started on uh, who Paulson chose to be the guy to actually sign the checks that are going out under the $700 billion bailout program. One of his ex-cronies from Goldman Sachs, who's now like an assistant secretary of the Treasury, another absolute slimeball who Paulson has entrusted with the disbursement of this money. And this, this assistant secretary guy, this is not a guy who has been vetted. This is not a guy who we have voted for. This is not someone we really know anything about. It's uh, one of his cronies from Goldman, and there he is now, the guy with the pen signing the checks. 
And, you know, I heard that, Gene, and it made me think, so, Paulson, why don't you, like, disperse the money? You're having some other guy do it? Some right-hand guy? And I thought, well, there you go, plausible deniability, right? Right. It's not his fault. It's not mm. your fault. It wasn't his signature on the checks. But this, this whole thing just continues to smell to me, Gene. But you know what? Let's leave all that behind. Let's actually, this week, engage the realms of the paranormal and science. Yes, we're going to do this this week to make up for, you know, what's her name? <laughs> Please don't mention her name. Let me just tell you something, though. Yeah. You know what's funny to me is I can't believe who would come to her defense. And well, when I heard about this, you know, I almost flipped. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. And I'm going to read you a letter very quickly here. Okay? okay? Very quick letter here. And then I'll tell you who it came from. All right. And it says, now, remember, this is somebody in the UFO field who has prestige. Okay? And he says, quote, I haven't listened to the broadcast in question, and I don't intend to. I suppose I ought to add that I, too, harbor deep doubts about Billy Myers' claims. Nonetheless, I feel confident in saying that Paula Harris is absolutely correct. If somebody is going to take time out of his or her life to grant a radio show host's request for an interview without compensation, that person deserves to be treated with courtesy and respect. Any disagreement should be expressed in that spirit. Now, remember, he never heard the show. <sighs> okay. A small point. I first encountered Gene Steinberg when I got interested in UFOs and entered the teenage ufology subculture in the early 1960s. I have uh -huh. had practically no contact with him since and was yeah. frankly surprised that he has returned in some kind of role. He was always and evidently remains more a personality than an investigator, researcher, or theorist. I mention this only because the issue of his background was raised. By whom? I don't know. That's, by the way, from Jerry Clark. Okay. Dick Clark's brother? Seriously? <laughs> no, Jerry He's Clark. Still alive? Well, it's not that one. It's Jerry Clark. Dude, no, 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 no. There's only one Jerry Clark in the whole world. Dick Clark's brother. Well, it used to actually be his sister, but then there was a, an operation right around the time that Walter Carlos became Wendy Carlos. You know, the uh, really important electronic musician, the composer of the soundtracks for things like Clockwork Orange and Tron, and actually the musical mind behind uh, Switched on Bach, best-selling classical music album of all time. So when Walter became Wendy, that was around the same time that, you know, uh, Jerry, J-E-R-I, became J-E-R-R-Y. That's Jerry Clark, Dick Clark's brother. That's I now know that Jerry Clark, or whoever he is, is definitely not going to hear this show. Why? I don't know. I just think that, seriously, Jerry Clark, as a lot of our yeah, listeners... Dick Clark's brother. Of no, no, let's, no, 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 it's Dick Clark's brother, dude. We should get to the guest, because you're obviously confused. I am very confused. Obviously, Jerry Clark is Dick Clark's brother, who underwent a sex change operation, and that's Jerry. it. And now Jerry. I know he won't listen to the show, but we have somebody who will take us to another realm. Excellent. Dr. Gary Schwartz a professor of psychology who studies parapsychology. Wow. Does he give shots? <laughs> well, he's going to take a shot at being a guest on the show coming up next on the Paracast. I'm feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the Paracast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels, 
you pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. So, Dr. Schwartz, we'll, we'll get around to calling you Gary once we get a little comfortable here. You're someone who is coming at the topic of the paranormal from, a, from an academic background, but I'm going to guess that you might have had an interest in this before your involvement, your, your formal involvement. Did you have some experience when you were younger that made you interested in this topic, or are you just coming at this sort of cold? You know, that's a really good question, and I've done hundreds and hundreds of radio shows and TV shows, and no one's ever asked me that question, which is actually... Are you serious? Really? I'm serious. No one's ever asked you that? No one has ever asked me that question, huh. which is why I'm sitting here now thinking about it. Because the truth <laughs> is, I... You know, many people have had wonderful anomalous experiences or scary experiences, and mm-hmm. I didn't really have any that I was aware of as a child. But I, what I can tell you is that in my, when I was in my 40s, and I started learning about what are called near-death experiences, uh, which I'm sure you're aware of. Absolutely. Where people have, uh, you, you know, physically died and been brought back, and uh, they have a whole series of experiences, including being in a light or experiencing tunnels or being uh, greeted by people or having past life reviews and so on and so forth. When I was a child, I had, there were two, period, two times where I almost died. Once when I was about a year old, where um, I had a severe allergic reaction to penicillin and almost mm. died. And the second one, when I was uh, I don't know, nine or ten years old and had a uh, consultant, uh, and um, they botched the surgery and the stitches broke, and I was bleeding into my lungs and almost drowned in my own blood. And what was interesting is that I have memories from both of those experiences. The one when I was an infant, I actually remember seeing a light this very, very bright light. That's all I remember. Of course, I didn't think anything of it as a child. Sure. Now, and then when I, was, uh, when I had my tonsils out, I actually, uh, again, remembered seeing a light. I remember seeing a tunnel. I don't remember seeing any people or hearing anything, but I did have this, again, awareness, and it was very peaceful. There was nothing threatening um, in either of those times. And... Now I begin to wonder whether or not my, um, I don't know, my uh, affinity for being able to uh, appreciate 
work with people who have unusual capabilities, whether it partly stems from the fact that I may have had two near-death experiences and didn't know it. I think that's probably a fair assumption. And one of the things that we find with a lot of the guests we have on is that, indeed, there are these early experiences that definitely set a tone. And I could certainly verify that in my own personal experience, that that is exactly what I went through, that there were these personal experiences very early on in my life, and and they set a certain uh, mental initial state that essentially leaves you open, right? It leaves you open to these things. Well, I think so, but I mean, many people have had, you know, they've either had experience of seeing their deceased grandfather or having precognitive dreams or any number of, of experiences that immediately lead them to have a fascination with the paranormal. For me, I had none of that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really enter this world until I was uh, just finished my PhD at Harvard and then was exposed to some of this through a, uh, a former PhD student who was doing research in the area. And that's when I first got exposed to the possibility that there really were these anomalous phenomena and that they could be investigated in the laboratory. Tell us a little bit about that, uh, that, that student and what that student was looking into. This was a person, his, his name is um, Dr. Ed Kelly, and Ed had done a PhD in, I think it was social psychology at Harvard, probably in the late 1960s, uh, what was then called the Department of Social Relations. And I was a clinical psychology graduate student in that department. We didn't know each other as far as I know when we were in graduate school. And then I was on the faculty for five years. And Ed had had an interest in parapsychology. And he was doing some work with a, uh, apparently someone who was a well-known psychic at the time, and I can't remember his name offhand, but they were doing something with, with what was called a Schmidt device, which was a device where you could push one of four buttons and attempt to predict which of four lights would come on. So it was a precognitive task. And um, the which of the four lights would come on was determined by the uh, decay of strontium-90, uh, the element. And mm-hmm. so it was supposedly random. And if you're pushing the buttons by chance or if you're just trying to guess and you don't have any skills, your accuracy is going to be about 25%. Well, this person would get 35 to 50% or more at a given sitting. And it was anomalous. And this is what, you know, you could call it micro uh, precognition because he was anticipating when something was going to happen at a very micro level. And that was the first time that I was actually exposed to uh, some human being who was doing something that seemed to defy the, 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 the physics of the time. And yet he was doing something real and he could demonstrate it sufficiently reliably um, in a laboratory to say, wow, there may be some special phenomenon here. Now, but again, that was not something that I, I, mean, I didn't pursue parapsychology research or anything like that at that time, but it at least awakened me to the possibility. Now, Dr. Schwartz, we, we recently heard about some research. I, I don't have the data in front of me, but I'll just paraphrase it. There was some research that talked about the ability of the brain to react to visual input stimulation in a way that was almost, well, not almost, that showed some level of precognitive ability, essentially where you had the brain reacting to visual information almost 
instantaneously when we know that there is some sort of a fairly small, I mean, I, I think it's like milliseconds, maybe even something, some smaller time increment than that, for visual stimuli to be processed through the optic nerve, through the brain, but that people that, you know, I think this was done in a, in a clinical setting, that people had reactions to visual stimuli that were essentially real-time negating the processing time and the transmission time of the information that essentially made scientists say, well, you know, it looks like there's almost some sort of a, of a physiological ability to have some, and again, it was maybe like, like milliseconds, microseconds of a precognitive ability. Are, are you aware of that research? I'm not aware of that particular um, study. I am aware of studies that were done by Dr. Dean Radin and colleagues where they would have people, they would measure physiological responses, including EEG responses, in anticipation of people uh, seeing pictures and that before the picture would be presented and it was randomly determined whether it was a positive or negative picture. People would show physiological um, arousal discerning whether the picture was positive or negative before the picture had been selected and, and presented. On the other hand, just to relate to your, what you're talking about, is I actually published some research with a former PhD student of mine, Dr. Linda Song, where we were looking at the capacity of the brain to register signals coming from the heart electromagnetically. And again, normally what's thought is that the, uh, is that the way that the brain responds to the heart is it responds by pressure receptors, for example, or chemoreceptors. But it's certainly not picking up electrical signals from the heart, even though, in fact, the EKG uh, from the heart travels to every cell within the body because the body is a very good, you know, we're composed of 80-plus percent liquid and blood and so on, and it's got all the nutrients in it and salt and so on. So it's a very good conductor of electricity. And anyway, what we found was that which is really interesting, is that we had people paying attention to their heart on some trials and paying attention to their eyes on other trials. And the bottom line was that when people were paying attention to their hearts, they actually registered the P wave of the electrocardiogram in their brain more strongly than when they were paying attention to their eyes. Now, let me translate that into plain English. What that means is that when the heart was just beginning to beat, literally before blood was even coming out of the, vent the atria, and then it has to go to the ventricles before it actually goes out of the body and back into the head. Because literally at the very beginning of the, the contraction of the, the oracles, the electrical signal from the heart was reaching the brain, could be detected in the brain, and the brain was amplifying, was increasing its awareness of those signals with the very act of our conscious intention to try to experience the heartbeat. So right, paying now, attention to your body enhanced the electrical hmm. signals of the registering of the heart before any physical you know, evidence of the heart could be present. Okay, so, so here's a question about that, because as you're saying that, I'm thinking, and, and I qualify this, like I've said on the show, I'm not an economist, I am certainly not a medical doctor, but is it safe to assume that the brain is the electrochemical computer for the entire body? I would say it's probably one of the electrical uh, chemical computers for the for the body because there are other networks of neurons that also act as computers which will then register information not just within the organ but receiving it from different parts of the body. So yeah, I'm saying I would agree with you and then even go so suggest that the body has multiple computers of that sort. Sure. Well, if we think about the gray matter, for example, or the, the spinal matter, 
Um, it's my understanding that that effectively has some sort of autonomous abilities, and that and indeed, so does the, the nervous system going to the heart itself. Literally, okay. people talk about the second brain okay. um, in the heart, and they talk about the third brain in the gut. I'm, I'm agreeing with you and saying that it may right. even be more complex than that. So you know, how right. people have quote gut feelings. Absolutely, those for intuitive gut feelings may actually be those intuitive gut sensations may be the gut processing signals. Well, the reason I'm bringing this up, if we're talking about the brain receiving electrical information from the heart and and sort of registering it mm-hmm. before the the heart actually generates, I'm just wondering about the physiological and and what I'd probably refer to as the maintenance or management, I should say, the management uh, structure here. Where is it a possibility that that electrical activity? is actually originating in the brain, which is then controlling or triggering the heart so that what you're doing is you're, and again, I don't know, I'm just throwing this out there, is it a possibility that you're reading actual control information from the brain and improperly parsing it or interpreting it as having generated from the heart? Yeah, I I think that's highly improbable because if you cut the, if if you disconnect the brain from the heart, Electrically, the heart still beats and the heart still has patterns. So we know that the heart's, the origination of the heartbeat, um, and even the regulation of the heartbeat is first and foremost coming from the heart. Now having said that, that doesn't mean that the brain doesn't modulate the heart. It certainly does. So the, the rate with which the heart beats is going to be influenced by the brain. But the actual initiation of the heartbeat appears to be uh, controlled physiologically by the heart in a primary way or or see and this is again so you just said you disconnect the brain from the heart the heart will continue you can literally take the heart out of the body right and the heart keeps beating is it a, a question though at that point the management of the heart is handed over from the brain to the heart is this a is this distributed processing we're talking about or localized processing that receives I think, I, think the way, I think the way that well, the way that conventional I'm talking about conventional part of physicists and cardiovascular physiologists would talk about it they would say mm-hmm. yes it's localized mm-hmm. it's a localized process you know if you're going to put this in, in engineering terms it's, it's like you've got multiple parallel processors and they can influence each other. Right. But they do have some autonomy. Okay. But we may be getting far afield from parapsychology at this point. Well, I just had a question when you raised that, Gary, and that is that if this integration exists between the heart and the brain, this communication, Mm -hmm. when you transplant that heart, does it retain any characteristic of the person from whom the heart was removed? Because we see that, of course, on fantasy movies, but is there anything in reality to that? The answer is yes, um, and there are two reasons. Uh, there's two reasons why I, I come to the conclusion that the answer is yes. The first is that when I was a professor at Yale, in the process of teaching what was then a new course on human psychobiology and systems theory, I wanted to give students a feeling for how what what are called feedback loops work. And you've probably heard about what a feedback loop is. Absolutely. Um, And Einstein was one of my heroes. And Einstein, the way he had actually discovered his uh, theory of relativity was actually when he was a teenager. You know, he used to do imaginary experiments in his head, but he called thought experiments. And what Einstein did was he imagined that he was a light and he was traveling along at the speed of light. And he was looking at what 
he would experience when he was traveling at the speed of light. And what he experienced was not what he expected to experience. For example, he realized that if he was traveling at the speed of light, then nothing could catch up to him. And that, therefore, he had the, the sense of, quote, time slowing down and even time standing still. And he had a whole set of, of experiences, which he later translated into the mathematics that led to, you know, his, his profound insights. And he did this, of course, when he was basically a kid. And I said, when I was a year, I said, well, I'm basically a kid. I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take an, do a thought experiment and imagine that I'm an electron in a feedback loop, in a resonating circuit. And what I'm going to do is travel along with the electron, and I'm going to write down what I experienced. And so I did. I went around the, the, the loop from what's called A to B and back again, and I wrote down what I saw. And I took the ride once, and what I saw, I was not anticipated to see, to put it mildly. And then I took the loop around again, and at that point, I was terrified. And the reason I was terrified was because I had stumbled upon a principle whose predictions were so huge that that I uh, I was uh, overwhelmed, to say the least. And if I could just tell you about this briefly, I think it would be meaningful because it actually provides predictions about a whole host of paranormal phenomena, including the possibility of, of cellular, what's called cellular memory, transplanting you know, one organ into another organ. In a world where UFO conventions are completely, utterly boring, come something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do something new. The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. Enthusiasm. Starring Stephen Bassett. David Biedney. Dr. William J. Byrne. David Hatcher Childress. Patricia Gordon. Richard Dolan. Bud Hopkins. Ellen Blogno. Michael Manuel. Melissa Reed. Jeff Ritzman. Giorgio Sukalos. <laughs> Jeremy Vaney. And Farrier Duzo. Special President. By Combustive Motor Corporation. Masahiro Kata. And the world premiere of the silent but deadly truthful illusion of truth. For more information and to order tickets, please visit www.cultureofcontact.com. <laughs> Once again, that's www.cultureofcontact.com. Card subject to change. You could be screwed financially. Probably not, though. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Gedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We have Dr. Gary Schwartz with us. He's a professor of psychology. He got his Ph.D. from Harvard, and right now he studies parapsychology amongst other things and I want to ask you this before we go on and that is you're an academic with incredible credentials now when you got involved into the paranormal parapsychology whatever did your colleagues look at you and say who's that Gary guy think he is absolutely in fact you know some people get you know, some people said look everybody knows that this is impossible particularly for example the question of life after death I mean it's impossible. Therefore, if you're entertaining it, either you've lost your mind or you're being fooled by these, you know, by these psychics or mediums that you're working with, or I'm engaged in fraud myself. I mean, I've had from a subset of the super skeptics, the most dogmatic in science, you know, uh, I've been through it all. 
But you know, the, the nature of science is what you're supposed to do is follow the data where it takes you. And one of the things that most of the people who are super skeptics do not realize about me was that, uh, and my writing partner was the first person to actually sort of uh, give me a label for this, but I was essentially raised to be, a, to be an orthodox agnostic. And what that means is, <laughs> that whether I like the question that. is, do you like that? That's cool. That's cool. That's tell us more. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Orthodox agnostic. And let me tell you what that means. What that means is, it doesn't matter what the question is. Whether the question is, is there gravity or is there God? It doesn't matter what it is. My response is, I don't know. Could be yes. Could be no. Show me the data. I'm open. I'm basically, although I grew up in New York, I say I'm from Missouri. You know, I'm a show me, I'm a show me kind of guy. And for me, the, I don't believe or disbelieve anything in terms of any particular story or theory. To me, they're all possibilities. And what matters is whether or not you can design experiments that can address the predictions and then you confirm them or you disconfirm them. And you know, the history of science has been that there were all kinds of phenomena that people just assumed were true, which we later learned turned out not to be true as a result of new evidence. I mean, everybody knew that the Earth was flat, and it still looks that way when you're on the Earth, but we later learned that that was wrong. I think we have a politician on one of the major political parties who still believes that, and also that the Earth is 6,000 years old. But I didn't want to get into politics. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Please forgive me. <laughs> right. But, you but know, the, the, the whole notion of if you would follow the data where it takes you. So, for example, people ask me, are they saying, do they say, are you, Gary, are you trying to prove that survival of consciousness is true? And I say, absolutely not. What I'm trying to do is to give survival of consciousness, if it exists, the opportunity to prove itself. So to me, real science, genuine science, is the use of methods and logic to enable one to make discoveries which will then confirm or disconfirm particular beliefs and lead to the discovery of new knowledge. It's, it's not based on materialism or spiritualism or any ism. If there's any ism whatsoever, it's empiricism or it's, it's uh, you know. Okay, Gary. So, so that said, though, what's your response right. to people who then would come back to you and ask you about the, what we now see are more and more scientists who appear to be more interested in their you know, grant sources than actually finding any answers to anything, and potentially we've got, you know, there have been some recent revelations about scientists who fudge data, fudge results no in order to, it. right? I mean, so so the problem is, and, and I'm not saying that you have the answer to this, but you see where I'm going with this. I mean, how do you then sort of eliminate from any kind of consideration those people who are engaged in that, who are indeed playing a money game with this? versus right. people well, the, who might be looking for answers, right? Right. Well, there was a time when I was in graduate school, it was still, so to, spot, so to speak, the Camelot years. It was the years when the National Science Foundation and NIMH and so on, National Institute of Mental Health, National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation, they were just coming into their own, and they were funding exploratory science. They were, they were funding basic science. They were funding, uh, it, it was a time where there was much less, if you would, dogma. 
I mean, it was still like virtually impossible to get money for, for paranormal kinds of research, but at least it was less of a business. And then what happened was, over time, the scientists became more concerned with getting grants in order to have tenure or to have a salary increase and publishing in journals with, which presented the dogma or the accepted beliefs. And what's happened over time is that the, is that the business of science and the politics of science has gone way out of balance compared to the purpose of science which is the discovery of truth. And consequently, uh, I'll never forget about, this is literally close to 10 years ago, um, I spoke to one of my colleagues at the University of Arizona, and I was explaining to him why it was that I was pursuing this particular line of research, because that's where the data were taking me. And I was telling him about how, you know, about my philosophy, which is to follow the data where it takes you. And he said, Gary, he says, you know, most of the colleagues uh, that he knows that's no longer the case. What they do is they develop their theory. They want their theory to be correct. When the experiment supports their theory, they put it in their grant proposals. Yeah. When the experiments don't support their theory, they hide them mm -hmm. um, or minimize them. So that the, because the goal is not to discover truth, but the goal is keep being funded and publishing in mainstream journals. Now, I do not... And pay the rent, that, of course. You know, they have and, to pay and, the which rent. Is, of course, which is to pay the rent and take <laughs> care of your family and take care of your graduate students. It's not, it's not an evil motive. It's just that the system is no longer rewarding the, the creative side of science. And I hope that someday that'll come back into balance. Let me ask you here. You've encountered such skeptics as James Randi in the course of your investigations. Do you have any good war stories to present to us about oh, that? Oh, I, yes, I have. And maybe we should I do a 12-hour show on this, but I'm curious. Okay. Well, I actually tell a story, and I'd love to share this one, in a book I wrote called The Truth About Medium, which was the second book that I published about research on the possibility of life after death, working with people who claim to be able to receive accurate communication from, from people who have died. And um, remember, I approached it as an orthodox agnostic. I didn't know whether this was real or not, and I didn't know if their explanations were valid. And by the way, we also know that there are frauds in the field, and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, Mr. Randy was very upset by the research findings that we were getting. And he uh, wrote a letter to the uh, president of the Arizona Foundation, which is the... Uh, the nonprofit organization affiliated with the University of Arizona, telling them that they would he, that his organization would give the University of Arizona a $100,000 so-called gift, research gift, if the University of Arizona would give over all of my raw data on the various experiments that I had done with these mediums, including single-blind and double-blind experiments, and that he would have a committee that would independently evaluate the research. And if they came to the conclusion that my conclusions were correct, they would then give this money to the University of Arizona. Well, of course, the president wrote to me and asked me about this and showed me the letter because uh, James Randi hadn't sent the letter to me. And as I was looking at this, well, of course, there are immediate complications. There are what are called human subjects, IRB, confidentiality issues. You just don't give over raw data uh, to people. But secondly, as I looked through this so-called committee, I am... Um, recognized that one of the members of the committee, in fact, I knew this person, 
And I contacted this person. So I decided to contact this person to see if there really was a committee and if he agreed to this committee. And what he told me was that he had been asked to serve on this committee and declined. That he felt huh. that what they were doing was not, let's just put it this way, was not going to be a, a fair and just evaluation of the data. So he resigned. He, he would not agree. But nonetheless, his name was listed. So I told the president of the university about this, and they, what the president decided to do was to, to uh, president of the foundation was to send a letter to the Randy Foundation saying, thank you very much, but this is an individual decision that a professor would make, and if you wish, you should contact, you know, Professor Schwartz directly. Okay. What they then did was on their website, sent a copy, printed their letter, printed the response of the president and just said that the, the president is simply protecting Dr. Schwartz and that, and that Dr. Schwartz does not want to be evaluated. Well, when this was brought to my attention, as you can imagine, I was pretty uh, unhappy, concerned, yeah, unhappy. There were other yeah. words, but and we're not going to mention them on family radio. You got it. And what I did was I shared with a few people that this was not the whole truth, to put it mildly. And in fact, one of the reasons that I, at the university, stayed away from this was because Mr. Randy had misrepresented the committee. Well, this got back to him through a particular person. And he wrote on his uh, website and to this person that if Dr. Schwartz could provide evidence that a member of his committee had actually declined to be on the committee, that what he would do is, quote, push a peanut down Times Square with his nose naked, unquote. Oh, that's now just that, a foul visual. That's just not good. But that's if what he it, said, okay? But if anybody's so, but listening now, to this... Now, now Mr. Whole... Randy, Mr. Randy <laughs> is not known for either truth or um, grace. So, <laughs> or tact, as a matter of fact, it sounds like. Yeah, so when, I, when this was brought to my attention, I contacted the person who, was on the, who had been asked to be on the committee and asked if I had permission to share his email indicating that he, in fact, had declined being in this committee. And he agreed. And this was sent by, uh, you know, by the, by the, through the various channels to Mr. Randy. Now, do you think that Mr. Randy honored that promise? <laughs> I would hope he wouldn't, because that's just a disgusting visual. I don't want to see that. But I don't think any, I don't think, I don't think anybody wants to see that, Gary. That's okay, terrible. But, but what you're asking yeah, for, yeah. You see, here's what used to be the case. I used to think that people like Mr. Randy or Dr. Shermer, you know, Michael Shermer, yeah. um, or, or Dr. Kurtz, who's the head of the, another one of the skeptic organizations, that these people were actually heroes of society, that they were good, honest people trying, trying to protect humanity, all of us, from the scams and the, the fraudulent people. And by the way, they do. You know, they scout out and debunk and find people who are, uh, you know, sharing misinformation and so on. However, because they're in the profession of debunking, it's really important that they, uh, that they never uncover real things. Well, what happens is they end up using some of the most virulent and uh, negative and fallacious tactics, uh, and they're even in sometimes worse than the fraudulent mediums and, you know, and the confused psychics. Here's the thing about that, Gary. Um, it's interesting you bring uh, that, you know, I guess Gene brings up Randy, and now you've just given us a story. Uh, it's an old uh, this good is friend public of knowledge. This is in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. And, and, and I actually would take a camera, a video camera, and I would be happy to videotape 
James Randi doing that gag. Uh, that'd be pretty funny. I have, I have I have effects software that could do the most amazing things with that peanut. Having met Randy on several occasions, I don't think you need to manipulate the special effects. I just think the actual personage there uh, doing this would be totally whacked out. Right, but 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 let's let's recognize something here that what you've got is matter and antimatter. Uh, very close old friend of mine, uh, well-known underground artist Paul Mavridis, has uh, his tagline: "Without lies, there can be no truth." Basically, for positive space, you need negative space. We've actually taken Randy to task on this show specifically for an entry on his website about a case that has long fascinated me: the, the case of uh, Jose Zarigo in Brazil in the 50s to right. 70s, one of the best documented paranormal cases of the 20th century, no question. I guess there's like on on Brandy's website one paragraph dealing with Arigo saying, well, he's got to be a farce because his family lived in the town where where he lived and all these people who came to see Arigo gave some financial benefit to his family because they owned a hotel in town or like the marketplace where people would buy food. And I thought, well, is that all you've got? You're not addressing the mountain of evidence. You're not addressing the mountain of personal testimonials. John G. Fuller's book, The Surgeon of the Rest of Your Knife, you're just ignoring all that. But mm -hmm. in a way, Randy is on that side what a lot of people are on the other side. You know, doe-eyed believers who basically don't want to apply any kind of logic, any kind of critical or analytical thinking. They will simply be handed a brown paper bag they'll be told there is a boogeyman in that bag and they won't open it they'll say look this bag this bag has the boogeyman why well look it, it has it because you know that person told me so so you've got these two extremes gary going on on either end and i mean like in the case of of uh Rand, of Randy, actually, you know, yeah go ahead. you've actually verbalized you're implicitly suggesting a theory which <laughs> I find intriguing to say the least. I'll tell you what, I am going to leave a cliffhanger with a theory. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Dr. Gary Schwartz joins us, a professor of psychology who studies parapsychology okay so the theory so here's here's your theory this okay. is your implicit theory what you're saying is that and i'm and i'm going to i'm going to reframe it that uncritical thinking just if you would blind acceptance of anything in order that it does not go too far out of hand requires if you would equal countermeasures extreme measures to try to restore the balance 
And so, if you would, the Randys of the world are actually necessary to counteract the super believers. If you would, you need yeah. super skeptics to counteract super believers. Yeah. If, however, humanity was to become ever more discerning, it was to become ever more, if you would, metaphorically orthodox agnostic, if it was to be one of keeping an open mind and a questioning mind. One of the things I loved about Einstein, who was a hero of mine, and we should get back to that brief lesson that I learned about, which gets back to cellular memory. One of the great lines, which I quote in one of my books, is, is the important thing is not to stop questioning. So there's always this aspect of reevaluating, reconsiderating, reinvestigating, and so on. And if that's the case, then the universe will reveal itself. And we just have to be prepared to be surprised. Well, the assumption is that we would be able to actually understand what it is the universe would reveal to us. I, I'm actually at this point in time not convinced that humans are, are would have that capability. I don't think that's the case. Well, I think there's a distinction between being able to understand it and at least to be able to chart it a bit. For example, we can invent a concept called infinity and we can make a symbol for it and then we can do mathematics and talk about infinity times infinity. And the truth is, we have no idea what we're talking about. And yet, mm -hmm. we have some sense and can work with it to some degree. So, it has to do with what do we mean by understand. I can know, for example, that something can occur and even be able to predict it to some extent and not have the foggiest idea how it's occurring or even understanding what it might mean. You see what I'm saying? So, there's yeah. levels to... Yeah. The, and one of the things you learn is, at least one of the lessons that I've learned, is humility. That's a that's a lesson I think we could we could all learn, especially Gene. <laughs> Humility is my middle name. I see. Because uh, they call me humorless or something like that. You know, I want to jump back on something because we were hitting it before, and then I guess we got sidetracked. Cellular memory. Yes. And of course, we see these movies, of course, where someone right, gets right. the heart of somebody else and suddenly right. acquires some characteristic of that person. So what well, happens in the real world as opposed to the R-E-E-L world? Yes. Well, just getting back to finishing this story, what I had stumbled upon at Yale, and I'll just give you the bottom line, is that whenever there's a feedback loop, what feedback means, and it doesn't matter whether it's feedback between an electron and a proton or feedback between hydrogen and oxygen in a molecule making water, or whether it's feedback in a complex molecule like between two strands of DNA, or feedback between two cells, be they neurons or any other cell, or feedback between two organs like the heart and the brain, or feedback between two organisms like you or me, or feedback between large systems like the earth and the, and the sun, or feedback by even larger systems like one galaxy and other matter. It doesn't matter that whenever there is a feedback process going on, there's a fundamental principle that I stumbled upon. The math is not important right now. But in plain English, what it means is what goes around and stays around evolves around. In other words, what feedback is, you know, for example, if I say hello to you and then you say back what? What do you say to me? Hello. <laughs> delayed. Yes. You hello. delayed the feedback. Okay. But well, I would hello. say how the heck are you? Yeah, okay. That's fine. Let's go. Okay. But if we analyze this process. <laughs> What happens is, and I'm going to get to the now the cellular memory in a second, is at time one, I say hello, okay? Now, it takes time for those patterns of information, the hello, to ultimately reach you. By the way, where are you located? Where are you fighting uh, now? I'm actually in New York, and Gina's in Guantanamo Bay. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's going to take <laughs> by way of Scottsdale, Arizona. That's cute. Okay. So, but they're going to pick is, me up in a few minutes, so I just wanted to be prepared. Oh. Okay. Right. David, so, it's your fault. So it takes a certain amount of time, even if it's just you know microseconds, for the information from me to get to you. Sure. In this case, it'll take milliseconds. Now, what's very important is that what reaches you is what I actually sent you previously. If I say, okay, say hello, and what you hear is rura, you're not going to be able to process it. So if at time one, what comes out of my mouth, and I'm A, is a little A1, what reaches you at time two is the state that I was in at time one, which is a little A1, okay? Now, at time two, you're B in this little diagram here. You here process the word, the, the what coming out is A1, and you say something to me. And the simplest thing that you could do is to either repeat what I've said or transform it slightly. Mm -hmm. So what comes out of you at time three could be mathematically described as the state that I was in at time one, the little a1, plus the state that you were in at time two, which is a little b2. So what comes out of you, your mouth, at time three is a little a1, b2. Now, it's really important that what you say reaches me in the same form that it was that you said it, okay? Which is at time four. So what am I hearing at time four? I'm hearing a little A1, B2. Now what is A1, B2? A1 is the state that I was in at time one as perceived and revised by you at time two. So what I'm responding to is a history of myself as perceived and revised by you. And then at time five, I'll say, well, how are you? Now, what comes out of me at time five is some state that I was in at time four, which is a little a4, but what I was receiving at the time four, which was a little a1b2. So at time five, it's a little a4b1, a1b2. Here's the critical things. As long as we're connected, as long as we're a feedback loop, and as long as all this information doesn't leave us, but some of it stays in the system, the history of the past remains in the present and is furthermore evolves over time. Now, that was the principle, this universal principle that I realized. And in plain English, what that implied was that everything that had recurrent feedback had memory. I repeat, everything that has feedback that is recurrent feedback has a, a memory, and that memory is a dynamic memory. Because not only does it exist over time, but it has the capacity to change over time. And that made a whole series of predictions all the way from material objects, like jewelry could have memory, which by the way would predict what's called psychometry, of psychics being able to read the history of someone who wore jewelry. Or it predicted, for example, that water could have memory, um, because it, it's a very complex dynamical feedback loop process with billions and billions of, of hydrogen and oxygen in these complex loops. And by the way, that it would explain what's called homeopathy. Now, I, 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 okay, go ahead. So I was going to bring up homeopathy. I have actually in my life attempted to, to utilize homeopathic remedies for problems I've mm -hmm. had. And they've been, I, I have personally found them to be absolutely useless. Right. I, that's and, just my own, my people, own, yeah. That's right. Many people have experienced it as being useless. And many other people have had profound reactions to them. And when you look at the actual empirical research, mm -hmm. What you find is there are effects. There are real effects. You can even do double-blind experiments, and you can get effects. But the effects are, are, on the average, small. On the average, small. 
and they vary in size from some people having no effect whatsoever to other people having very large effects. And that's just an observation. But I, I, I don't want to lose the main point here. Right. That, this, that, that what's called systemic memory, which derives out of an integration of physics and systems theory, leads to the fact that all learning involves feedback loops and learning involves memory. Now, that led me to the prediction that at the level of organs, since organs contain billions of cells like a heart, and these billions of cells are, are continually giving each of the cells are engaged in feedback processes, that theoretically the heart had the capacity to learn like the brain does, only it would not learn quite as well. And the reason is because neurons, each neuron creates hundreds of feedback loops. And the more feedback loops there are, the more capacity for learning. What makes neurons unique is not that they, is that they, it's not, what makes them unique is that they've got many, many feedback loops. And that's, by the way, how neural network software learns. If you have feedback loops, you eliminate the feedback loops, there's no learning in the computer. Well, anyway, I predicted that heart transplants, for example, particularly heart transplants, that if there was storage of core memories in the heart, that a subset, just like only a subset of people respond to homeopathy, a mm -hmm. subset of people who receive the transplant would potentially pick up and respond to the core memories of the donors. And what happened was that just at the time that I was beginning to start sharing the systemic memory hypothesis was the time when the very famous Claire Sylvia case, the book was being written called The Change of Heart. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with her case. It's a real case. And she actually received the first heart and lung transplant operation. Not just heart, but heart and lung. And of all places, it was in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, and it was interesting. It was occurring just around the time that I was leaving Yale and moving to the University of Arizona. Of course, I didn't know about the case at the time. And the um, anyway, her case was uh, she had been a dancer. She was uh, very health-oriented. She had a congenital disease, and she was going to die if she didn't ever receive the heart and lung. And so they did this. The first successful heart and lung surgery in New England was done there. And afterwards, the the press interviewed her. And they came to her when she was able to, to, you know, do an interview. And they asked her, they said, now that you have a new uh, lease on life, what do you want to do? And she said, out of the blue, totally shocking herself, I want to have a beer. Now, this is a woman who didn't drink, okay? <laughs> After she left the hospital, she had this overwhelming craving to get chicken McNuggets, the food that she didn't eat. And over the course of time, she began noticing changes in in color preferences and clothing preferences and taste preferences and so on. And there were, you know, there were three possibilities. It was a side effect of the medication. It was the stress of the surgery. Or maybe she was picking up the uh, memories of the donor. And uh, the question was, which, which, which was it? But of course, in those days, and still for the most part, you have no way of finding out who your donor is. So you therefore can't get the information. Well, through a story which I don't have time to tell right now, she did find the, the donor's family and went out to Maine and met the, uh, the uh, it was a young man who was 18, who had, I think was 18, who had died in a motorcycle accident. And she went to see the parents. Could you imagine, by the way, if you were a parent and somebody called you and said that the, your son's heart and lung was living inside you and yeah. she wanted oh, to boy. talk to you? That uh, must have been quite an experience. Anyway... Yeah. She found out that virtually all the changes that she was now experiencing matched 
this young man's preferences, including the fact that not only was he a great fan of beer, but he was a particular fan of chicken McNuggets. And literally, he had been driving home from uh, you know the, the fast food place when he was hit on his motorcycle, and they actually found uneaten pieces of chicken McNuggets in his motorcycle jacket. Whoa. This that is almost like a movie. There was a movie some years ago with David Duchovny, and I can't remember the woman who played the female part, but she gets a heart from David Duchovny's late wife. <sighs> so. Yes. yes. They've, they've made a few fictional movies about this. Well, anyway, I said, wow. You know, it's one thing to have a theory that makes a prediction. It's another thing to think that the theory might actually be accurate. So um, I then met a man by the name of Dr. Paul Pearsall, who recently passed away. And Paul was finishing a book called The Heart's Code. And in it, he described 74 cases of heart and other transplants, organ operations, that he chronicled where um, they were able to find out later who the donors were and verify certain of the information. And what I did was, when I learned about this, of course, I was absolutely amazed. And so what I did, but I was still skeptical, of course. So what I did was I asked Paul to send me what he considered to be the 10 best cases in terms of multiple verification of information. It was clear that there was no fraud involved, that there were at least two witnesses who could, after the person died, verify that this information fit and so on. And then I did an independent evaluation of those cases and then we ultimately wrote a paper about this. The conclusion that I came to was, although it's it's quite rare that people actually are have these kinds of very profound experiences, that there were enough of them happening, and they were they were they were too they were too strikingly matched to the to the donors to to uh, to be explained any other way. One of my favorite cases of, of cases that was a of a, of a young well, it was a middle aged uh, worker, white man who received the heart of a of an African American. And this was a guy who was sort of a lower middle class guy and he was afraid that if they if, if that maybe this was gonna rub off on him and he was gonna like love rap music or something like that. Anyway, after he received the heart transplant, he had a, a set of bizarre changes, including the fact that he developed a passion for classical music and he started listening to it, and he started singing it, and he started very quickly picking it up. His wife was totally confused. As happenstance would occur, he, he subsequently ended up meeting the, the mother of the young boy who died and learned that what happened was that this young boy was leaving. He was, he was a classical musician. He was leaving his violin lesson, and he was hit by a car um, and, and, and died. And so it turned out that the, uh, that this, that the, the heart that he had received was of a young man, an African-American, his passion was actually classical music. I'll tell you, this is a good point to break for the hour with a lot of fascinating stuff yet to come from Dr. Gary Schwartz on the Paracast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! A 
the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. We return to Dr. Gary Schwartz. He's a Ph.D. He got his Ph.D. from... Harvard University, wow, and he studies parapsychology. And we were talking about cellular memory, where, for example, some people who have received transplanted hearts or lungs seem to acquire characteristics of the person whose organ they got. Now, of course, the rather macabre interpretation of that in the movies is that you get the heart of somebody who was a killer, a robber. You then acquire their shall we say, evil characteristics. Is that possible in the real world? Well, you know, it's in the abstract, if we're talking purely theoretically, any very strong inclinations that could be uh, strong memories that would be stored within an organ system, if it was then transplanted, could potentially have an, an impact, you know, on the person. Now, having said that, you know that that it's it's... You almost universally the case that what the body does is the body rejects foreign material. That's why we use anti-inflammatory drugs we used. And the question is, is the body simply rejecting the, the matter, you know, the material substance of the body, or is the body also rejecting the information and energy that's stored in that matter? And there may be very good biological and adaptive survival reasons for, you know, not wanting to, uh, if you want, take on the uh, the matter, information, and energy of, of something that is incorporated within one's body. By the way, and the reverse of that is that if you could teach people to be more accepting of information, if they were more loving, if they were less defended, and so on, and they had a, uh, if you would, a safe heart, uh, you might actually be able to reduce or even eliminate the need for anti-inflammatory medication. And there have been a couple of cases suggesting that that's... Um, that that's not impossible. So I think that the, it's probably adaptive that, uh, that most of us don't, I'm not talking about that transplant, but most people who, who have transplants have very little conscious awareness of any historic memories. Mm-hmm. And that may be partly as a protective or an adaptive mechanism to keep those possibilities from affecting the core system. Well, the reason yeah, I even asked this question, very frankly, maybe David knows this or not, I don't know if I mentioned it to him, but sometime in the next year, my wife is going to need corneal transplants. Hmm. So, you know, these little things sort of occur in the background, although the corneal transplant surgery is relatively benign compared to anything involving other transplants. And also, there's so little tissue sure. compared to the whole body that, it's, that even if there is memory... Um, it's going to be relatively minor. Of course, there was a movie called The Eye where they took off on the idea that, mm. that in a very sensitive person, you know, somebody who was potentially psychic anyway, that she might be able to uh, pick up that subtle memory that was present in the, in the cornea and use that information. There's one other, by the way, interpretation, and it's not an either-or, of these phenomena, 
which gets us into the question, of course, of psychics and mediums. And that is the idea that maybe the reason why some people experience dreams associated with the uh, recipient, you know, the, the donor's um, heart and so on in, in history is because they're actually connecting with the spirit, or the, the living energy of the person, the survival of consciousness after death. And so they're not just simply picking up memories from the organ, but they're actually connecting with the living soul of the person who's departed. And by the way, scientifically, we have to keep that hypothesis on the table. That's one of the hypotheses that sh should be explored in research on this topic. Okay, well, you wrote a book on life after death. That's correct. Called The Afterlife Experiments, Breakthrough Scientific correct. Evidence of Life After Death. So let's have a breakthrough. What do we know for real about life after death? Is this also like the sixth sense or something like that? Or like the people who see dead people? Or what is the reality that you've been able to determine? Okay. First of all, the, 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 by the way, I would like to just say for the record, I am not a parapsychologist. I do not consider myself doing parapsychology research. But by some people's labeling they see me as doing paranormal research because the topics are sometimes included in that area what would you label yourself i want to give you the proper label david wants what would you call yourself i know what they call me but i don't want to mention that on the air <laughs> that's very funny i was trained as what's called a psychophysiologist psycho meaning psychology and of course physiology relationship between mind and body and I was trained in clinical psychology and psychophysiology I do research that integrates body mind and spirit so you know I published a book called the energy healing experiments I do work in in things that relate to you might call it experimental theology um, but I also do mind body research I don't know what kind of label to put me on you could just say weird you know it's, uh, okay, so we're gonna say Gary E. Schwartz PhD weird I just want to correct that right now. I am updating the site right now. Weird. The thing is here is no. my middle name is Weird, so I don't know no, how to no, separate like that. Yeah, I mean, professionally, of course, I'm a psychologist and have training in physiology and engineering and so on. But I don't really have a, a you know formal label. It's, I'm an, an experimentalist. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at life after death. That word. But okay, uh, getting back to life after death, first of all, I sort of fell into this research, fell into it meaning because, partly because of the scientific theory that pushed me to be open to this possibility, and partly because I met multiple people, by the way, all of whom were women, each of whom were grieving a particular loved one, and they all wanted to know scientifically whether their loved ones were still here. And I described this in the book, The Air Flight Experiments. So I really began having no idea whether this was all fraud, whether it's called cold reading, meaning it's, it's mental magic trick, tricks, whether this was due to just people being grieving and being taken advantage of and misperceiving the information that mediums were getting. I didn't know whether this was experimenter error or bias in the few people who had actually studied mediumship, or did I know, by the way, whether or not if, the, if it was not fraud and it was not cold really reading and it was not Raider bias of, and it was not experimenter error, I didn't know, for example, whether the explanation could be something more simply paranormal, like the, the medium was reading the mind of the sitter, i.e. the medium was reading the mind of the person who was going to the, to the medium, and therefore they weren't talking to the deceased loved one, they were just reading the information about the deceased loved one. Again, I didn't know 
any of this when I started. And I began doing research, uh, first with one medium, then with five mediums, and then we were increased to more than 20 mediums. And to summarize the book before we could ask specific details um, or later experiments, the conclusion that I was forced to by the data, after doing very carefully controlled experiments, I was led to the conclusion that the simplest and most parsimonious explanation that accounted for the largest amount of the data, including the truly dramatic findings, was actually the survival of consciousness hypothesis, i.e. that life after death was real. I was forced to come to the conclusion that not all mediums were frauds, that some of them were the real deal, that some of them I called them Michael Jordans of the mediumship world, now we call them Tiger Woods of the mediumship world, but that there were certain people who were just off the charts in terms of being able to receive accurate information and that they and that the information appeared to be as alive as you and I did. That was the conclusion I came to. And I came to this as a scientist. Now, the one and only phenomenon that I personally encountered, at least one person removed from me, was when my mother-in-law died in 1985. She was in my wife's arms. She had the seizure. She died of a heart attack. But she basically was suffering from pancreatic cancer. So her longevity prospects were rather limited. Now, a few minutes later, after the medics came to do some tests and try to resurrect her, bring her back to life, at that point she died on, shall we say, the operating table or the examination table. At that point, my wife felt this incredible surge of something pushing inside her, like she was being hugged or pressed Mm -hmm. tightly. Now, have you heard of this phenomenon in connection Absolutely. with someone who's recently dead? Okay. Yes, and it's it's actually more common than when you would expect. People can be separated by hundreds or thousands of miles, not even know that the person is dying or has died, and um, have these kinds of experiences. And part of the reason that you, that you conclude that these re- that these experiences, these real life experiences, are probably valid, is because of the exquisite timing of them um, and the fact. And in many cases, they didn't know. The case of your wife's case, I presume, her her mother was receiving surgery and she didn't know what the outcome was. So yes, those things really happen. In a, the book I wrote called The Truth About Medium, I um I dedicated it to a, a woman who named Susie Smith, who had published 30 books in the field of parapsychology and survival of consciousness after death. When I met Susie, she had been 85 years old. At that time, I'd already published 29 books. Um, and she became, so to speak, a mentor to me because she, she was able to teach me a lot of this material that I wouldn't have known otherwise in terms of the history of the field of the life. She metaphorically became my uh, adopted grandmother. She used to call me her illegitimate grandson. And as I'm fond of telling people, Susie couldn't wait to die so she could prove that she was um, still here. And what started her on her journey to try to figure out whether or not life after death was real or not was... Um, an experience very much like your wife's, only hers occurred a couple of years after her mother died. And because Susie had been a skeptical journalist and didn't believe any of this. And then she read a book which opened her mind to the possibility that life after death might be true. And, and as she told the story, she uh, she was walking um, in a park in Salt Lake City, um, Utah. She was writing for a newspaper there at the time. And she asked in her head, she said, Mother, she said, if, she was, if you're really here, if life after death is real, could you please give me a sign? And then what Susie describes was that she was overwhelmed, as she described it, the feeling of the presence of her mother. 
this very powerful energy, this feeling of being hugged, and so on. And Susie, being skeptical, didn't know whether this was simply her imagination or wishful thinking, or whether it was actually the energetic presence of her mother. And then Susie ended up spending the next 45 years of her life trying to figure out which was which. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net hi this is brad steiger and i'm in the paracast with gene steinberg and david Vietney. join us as we explore new dimensions of thought i'll tell you which is which we're talking to dr gary schwartz he is a professor of psychology, and his studies into the paranormal are best summarized by the word weird. Okay? <laughs> That's how it works. Okay. Now, by the way, I have a deep affection for the word weird. Okay. You know, in quantum physics, there are phenomena like what's called non-locality and entanglement and so on, and they're actually, they're actually called quantum weirdness. Just because something's weird doesn't mean it's not true. I'm going to ask you kind of a larger meta question here. Those who think they're getting contacts from people who have passed on, mm. can we assume that's the case or that they may be getting contacts from beings who have other things on their mind other than being nice to us and that they are not the spirits of the dead? In other words, deception. In any one individual case, the answer is you don't know. Initially, you don't know. You don't know whether it's even just wishful thinking. You don't know whether they're picking up the mind of somebody else who's physically living and having these thoughts. You don't know whether or not it's really their loved one or someone impersonating their loved one. But what I can say is that up to now, of course, there's been very little scientific research in this in general, but we don't know whether or not people can actually impersonate other people from the other side. We don't know whether that kind of deception actually exists after a person dies, whether it, one's capable of doing that. And again, I'm saying this as a scientist, as an open-minded person, acknowledging what answers we don't have, you know, what questions we don't have answers to. So the answer is I don't know. By the way, I have always, not always, but for the past few years, wanted to, to design an experiment where certain individuals who are deceased, who have shown up in multiple controlled experiments in our laboratory, were actually encouraged to impersonate somebody else and see whether they could actually do it from the other side. What about things like possession, so-called possession, things that require an exorcism, for example? What's your feeling about that? Well, the, first of all, of course, the, this is never important to a laboratory. Secondly, once you accept the totality of the data from the experiments that I and a few other scientists in the world uh, living have done, 
once you accept that the idea that the probability that our consciousness and energy continues is the same probability that the light from distant stars continues long after the star has died, that our light, our energy and information continues too. Once you accept that possibility, then the possibility for possession becomes eminently plausible. Just like the possibility of reincarnation becomes eminently plausible. We can't dismiss the possibility that, uh, in fact, we need to be open, seriously open, that certain individuals, particularly particularly if, they, if they've drunk alcohol or they have brain damage or, they, or they're psychologically stressed or whatever, so that they're no longer able to, to, to filter and control and maintain their own autonomy, that they could be, quote, taken over by an unwanted spirit. We have to be open to that possibility. All right, so here's a question I'm sure a lot of our listeners have on their minds right now, Gary. When we talk about things like uh, verifiable evidence or a scientific method applied to the idea of trying to, and let's qualify this, not gain an understanding of what the afterlife consists of, but just that it exists at all. Exactly. Right. So what sort of experimental methodology is put into place to create an objective corroboration of this? Good question. Let me give you an example that uh, of an experiment that we published last year, which is one of which is one of the best. You know, science is, as you know, a process of doing ever more sophisticated and refined experiments, and I've done many. But I'll give you an example of sort of how far the, the work has evolved into. This is what's called a triple blind medium experiment, which means it's even blinder than a double blind experiment, which is the gold standard in biomedical research. So let me tell you how, how this works. Mm-hmm. First of all, the mediums, in this case there were eight research mediums, these mediums were kept blind to the identity of the sitters, the people who wish to hear from their deceased loved ones, and the identity of the deceased people. So that, first of all, they're blind. Okay? So when they're called, they don't know who the sitter is or what the, or, or the information about the deceased. The only thing that they're ever given in the experiment, and that's just to help them focus, is they'll be given the first name. So, for example, the experimenter will say, okay, what we'd like you to do if you're in the medium is for the next 10 minutes receive whatever information you can from a deceased person named Bob. Now, sure. by the way, how many deceased Bobs do you think there are over the past More than a few. Years? Yeah, absolutely. More than a okay. few. So that's not going to give you too much information, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the second level of blindness is the experimenter. This is really important. Because in this particular case, the experimenter who's actually calling the mediums and giving the information, for example, try to contact Bob or try to contact John, the experimenter is blind to the information about the sitter and the information about the deceased. So and this is what's called a proxy. The experimenter is therefore a proxy sitter. Mm-hmm. So consequently, not only can't the experimenter give any untoward or unconscious information to the medium when, during the reading, but if the medium was reading the mind of the experimenter, they'd be getting false information. Sure. Right? So that rules out, you know, that the, the medium is reading the mind of the person that they're physically communicating with. And then the third thing is that the, the actual sitters were not present at the time the readings occurred. They would be told approximately when the reading would take place so that their heads, they could invite their loved one if they were there to attend the, the, the reading. They were not physically present. And what would happen is they would receive a pair of readings, two readings, one which would be their reading, 
and the other would be a matched reading of some other person, a match for sex. Um, and the readings were, were set up for scoring so that each item would be individually scored in terms of whether it fit or whether it was a partial fit or whether it didn't fit at all and so on, okay? And then afterwards, and they would score each reading in terms of which information fit their deceased loved ones. And then when they were all done, using a, a formal rating system from, from, from zero to six, they would grade each reading in terms of to what extent it overall fit their loved one. And then they would have to pick which of the two that they think fit. So they're now blind to which of the information. That's what makes it triple blind. Media is blind, experiment is blind, and save for the other experimenter who was hand-coordinating all of this, then the, the sitter was blind. And now the question is, and by the way, whatever biases the, the, the sitter, the rater might have, the absent sitter, they'd be applying those biases to both readings. So you couldn't explain the difference as due to the rater's ability to rate as well. And under those strict triple-blind conditions, you do the statistics, and people pick their readings significantly greater than chance. So you look at that kind of a study, and it's very hard to explain in terms of fraud or cold reading or rate bias or experiment or error, or that the medium is reading the mind of the person they're physically talking to, which in this case is the experiment. Who That's are the eight psychics, Gary, what? that you were looking at? Who were they? Yeah. Well, they were various people. I don't like to mention names on radio shows anymore, but you can. But the, the and and there are very good reasons. Uh, some people wish to be anonymous, and some people don't. So we just keep it all anonymous. These are people, um, some of whom are actually well-known psychics. I mean, in this particular experiment, they were, you know, they've had TV shows and so on. Other people are people who are unknown, but all of whom have, have gone through rigorous. Um, testing to be allowed to participate in the research. So they are already skilled mediums who have done both single-blind and double-blind experiments and get accurate information. The reason uh, that I asked you that, Gary, is that um, we've had a number of psychics approach the show and want to come on, given the, uh, sure. the, the uh, sort of as we, as we go through time, our show is becoming more and more popular, and, it, and it's considered by many to be a a rational place to have a discussion. So we've had a number of people approach this, a number of psychics and mediums wanting to come on, on the show. And what I've said to them is, look, um, we'd be interested in that, but in order for us to feel comfortable bringing someone on the show, essentially you're going to have to show me, and, and Gina sort of let me run with this, I've said to them, you're going to have to show me that you've got some abilities. Uh, we're not just going to let you come on the show because you're a self-proclaimed medium or psychic. Uh, you need to show us what you can do, and and I've 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 asked this of them in a very respectful way, and basically what I've had happen there have been I think either five or six now of these people, who have either flat out said oh no you know, I'm not going to do that, or who have given us a runaround for up in one case up to a couple of months going back and forth and finally saying at the very end right before we're supposed to uh, I'm supposed to get a reading from them oh no I I don't I don't think I can perform. And, and I think that that was really kind of an interesting piece of terminology that one particular person used. They said, I can't perform under those kinds of conditions, right. under that kind of pressure. I know years and, ago when Long John Neville was doing that kind of thing, he would get people on the show. And they would always say, well, I feel bad vibes in this room, so yeah. I can't perform.
episodes of Erie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.erieradio.com. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. I can tell you that we're talking to Dr. Gary Schwartz. He has a Ph.D. in psychology, but he has investigated the world of the weird. David. I'm glad you still remember my name, Gene. It's very so, difficult. After two and a half years, the brain cells start fading, and I have to call upon my heart to supply the distributed processing and, and supply the missing beat. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I hear crickets. No, I'm sorry. Anyway, Gene. <laughs> so, Gary, it's an old Yiddish saying. And uh, it's time that we, uh, we deploy it to the show. So let's talk about some, some, some stuff here that I think a lot of our listeners are probably wondering. A number of months ago, we had on the show a fellow who runs a website called Stop Sylvia Brown. And uh, he's done a really amazing job of documenting all of the stuff, the problems with her. I'm not going to ask you what you think of Sylvia Brown. I hope that I know what you would say. But let's talk for a moment about John Edwards. Because I know that uh, John has been one of the subjects of your studies. And, uh, you know, he's that guy on TV that you didn't mention before. So I'll go ahead and, and I'll stir up the, the hornet's nest here and, and mention his name. He's a guy who's had a lot of media visibility. And uh, I'll be perfectly frank with you. I know, speaking for myself, I have a lot of problems with this person and this person's claims. So I'm wondering, what's the story with the uh, research that you have on him? I mean, what... Why did you get interested in this guy? That's a good question. I didn't get interested in him per se. What happened was that in 1998, I was approached by a uh, producer-director for HBO who was trying to do a, a serious and fair documentary on the possibility of life after death. And she heard through the grapevine that I was doing some, at that time, secret research with a medium. and. She came to me and asked whether it would be possible to actually demonstrate some of this research. And I said yes. And she explained to me that she had access to multiple mediums, including John Edward, who I'd never heard of at the time, and that they were having some difficulty in, in them being willing to be part of the show. 
And I said, well, I don't, you know, I can understand that because they don't necessarily know whether it's going to be fair or not. And I said, if you're really interested in science, maybe what you would consider doing is actually making it possible to do an actual experiment where you would bring in the multiple mediums and they would participate in the first ever documented real-life uh, demonstration experiment to see whether they could get accurate information on controlled conditions where they were blind to the um, to the identity of the, of the sitters. And I mean, long story short, they thought that was an interesting idea and uh, they actually made it possible for us uh, to collect those those data, which ultimately became part of their documentary called Life After Life. That's how I met John. He was one of the five mediums that was uh, tested. And he was a then unknown. He didn't have a television show or anything like that. I was impressed with him. Um, he was young. He had been a former, been in the healthcare profession. He actually cared about science. He actually was a, was a dog for facts. I mean, he was, he was, he used to describe himself like as a, Dog wants to get the, uh, you know, get bites on something. He doesn't want to let go. He actually participated in two subsequent experiments, which were ever more rigorous um, in their design, before he had his TV show. And in those experiments, we were able to rule out things like fraud and cold reading and radar bias and experimenter cueing. And therefore, I was led to the conclusion from those early experiments that he was doing something real. I didn't know what it was, but it wasn't any of those conventional explanations. Now, once he got his television show, of course, I couldn't speak to uh, the veracity of that. I didn't know what kind of editing they were doing. You only have control of your own laboratory. But what I can say is that John, as an individual, was very committed for mediums that they were going to make claims to, as he put it, be willing to sit in the hot seat. And not all mediums have been brave enough to actually come into the laboratory um, and be tested. And by the way, that includes uh, Sylvia Brown. Hmm. When uh, you were referring before to doing blind tests, so we're talking about uh, that you only did single blind tests with him? Or did you do something more elaborate than that subsequently? He never participated in a double blind experiment, but he hmm. participated in a very elaborate, uh, sophisticated single blind experiment, which was uh, actually called the Canyon Ranch experiment, described in the Afterlife Experiments book. And this is a case, and this, what's important about this experiment is that although the sitters were present when the readings took place, therefore you couldn't make it blind, couldn't make it double blind, the medium was, uh, which included John, was, uh, was separated from the sitter with a floor to ceiling shield, a screen so they couldn't, couldn't see. The medium was not allowed to talk to the sitter. The sitter never, in fact, said a word. And in the first 10 minutes of each reading, the medium had to say whatever came to their mind about the particular deceased uh, individuals in, uh, related to the sitter. And uh, the medium didn't know, which included John, whether the person was young or old, male or female, black or white, a believer or disbeliever. Uh, they just had to get the information. And in that particular study, we had... Um, uh, three different mediums and five different sitters and each each medium read all five sitters and then what happened was the sitters had to re had to score not only their reading but they had to score everyone else's reading huge amount of effort to see to what extent that they, the information was vague and general versus highly specific 
And in that, that study, um, very remarkable findings uh, were obtained. Let me give you an example so your readers and you can understand the kind of data. Mm-hmm. Um, for one reading, uh, John says um, in this period, remember, he doesn't know who the sitter is, sitter has spoken, doesn't right. know male or female, so on. And John says, um, I'm seeing a grandmother. There's a deceased grandmother. Well, that applies to you know most people. And then he says, uh, the grandmother's showing me that she really... Uh, love the sitter. Well, most grandmothers really love their grandmother. Sure. sure. And then he says, uh, the grandmother's showing me that she brought daisies to the wedding. Her daughter brought daisies to the wedding. And John says that with a question mark. Um, I later learned that not only did the sitter's mother bring, did the grandmother bring daisies to her mother's wedding, she actually wove them in her daughter's hair. Now, by the way, that's a very specific response. I've asked over 10,000 people, to what extent have their grandmothers brought daisies to the wedding? And fewer than five people over out of 10,000 people have raised that. And then John said, and the grandmother showing me that she had, the grandmother had two dogs, uh, two large dogs, in fact. Uh, they were large poodles, and they were, one was black and the other one was white. And boy, did the white one tear up the house. And you, if you ask yourself, how many, how many grandparents had two large dogs, a black one, a white one, large poodles, and the white one tore up the house? Well, it turned out I later learned, sure enough, this particular grandmother actually had two large dogs. They were two poodles. They were black and white. The white one did tear up the house, and I was actually shown a photograph later of those dogs. So when you look at those kinds of data, um, that's not fishing. Remember, he's getting no feedback. It doesn't hear the sitter's voice and so on. And that kind of thing doesn't have to be scored, quote, double blind, because you can clearly verify it and gain the fact that it's highly specific information. But and there's still the possibility, though. Let me, I just want to just let's be clear of something, though. There's still the possibility that we're talking about ESP. There's oh, absolutely. Okay. This kind of research does not rule out the possibility that what John was doing was, quote, reading the mind of the sitter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It doesn't tell us where the information was coming from. It only says that it's not coming by conventional means. That's just so the audience understands that this is what we've, you know, you've got the difference between single blind and double blind. In the case of double blind, that possibility would not exist, correct? Actually, it's really in triple blind that it would, it would not exist if the experimenter was also blind to the information and the sitter okay. wasn't present, okay? And that's the way you'd want to do it. Now, but what's interesting about that is that that doesn't rule, that rules out sort of, if you would, normal ESP, you know, the, the well, medium yes. being under the sitter. But somebody could argue, well, what the medium's still doing is somehow finding the absent sitter. That'd be a pretty the mind. trick, though. But if you can do that, that's a pretty good thing. I mean, that's, that's a, in and of itself, it's interesting, obviously. It's a fantastic, uh, it would be fantastic. Look, even simple ESP is pretty amazing to me. The more sophisticated ESP is even more remarkable. So you could then ask me, and I think you should, how is it that I've come to the conclusion that the simplest and most parsimonious explanation for the totality of the data and the most convincing explanation is survival of consciousness, how have I come to that conclusion? Absolutely. And the reason is because of other phenomena and, if you would, initially anomalies that occurred in the experiments, which suggested that the information is not, quote, simply dead and is not being, so to speak, read like you might read a book or read an encyclopedia. And there are various kinds of examples of where the information acts, if you would, alive. So, for example, and I describe this 
in the Afterlife Experiments book, and interestingly, it had to do with John happened to have been the, the medium in this particular instance. I mean, there were many examples of this, but John was getting information that the uh, that the uh, the sitter was wearing um, a piece of jewelry that her spouse had that previously belonged to her spouse, and the um, the sitter was adamant that she was not wearing that piece of jewelry. So you have to then the sitter is consciously saying to myself, no, I'm not wearing any jewelry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so if John was reading the sitter's mind, um, he would be, you know, he would be sensing this. Sure. Meanwhile, John is saying, well, gee, but the deceased is arguing that the deceased is saying no, that she's literally wearing the jewelry. And what was interesting is that I was watching the, uh, the sitter. And the sitter was actually, at that moment, unconsciously um, holding and fondling a ring which later turned out to have belonged to her husband. Hmm. So there's an instance where, and by the way, we've seen this many, many times, where the sitter will believe or think that one thing is true, and then later learned that either their memory was incorrect or their understanding was incorrect, and in fact the medium was accurate. That's a piece of evidence which is suggesting that somehow the truth is coming out, and the way mediums like John experience this is that the deceased is, so to speak, arguing with him and with the sitter. And there are many examples of what I call the, uh, if you would, the intentional mind. Because what happens is the information acts as if it's alive. Now, I had a very deep insight um, a few years ago in pondering all of this. And I realized that that I could never, at least using mediums, quote, prove that survival of consciousness existed. And the reason is because I can't even prove that to you that I'm conscious right now, right? The only consciousness that you experience is your own. Everyone else's you infer. So you talk to me, you say, you know, Dr. Schwartz, or you ask me a question, and I give you an answer. And what you do is you infer from my reactions that I'm conscious. And the clever, the kinds of questions you ask, and so on and so forth, the more that you infer that I'm telling the truth, that I'm being genuine, and that I'm literally thinking through, you know, what you're asking me. Well, I realized if I can't ultimately prove that I'm conscious when I'm alive, how am I going to prove that I'm conscious after I've passed? And so what we have to do, short of someday developing maybe electronic technology to detect spirit, is um, we have to make an inference. And by the way, psychology and physics as sciences share a number of qualities in common. And one of them is we make inferences based on observations. Like we can't see, taste, or smell gravity, but we infer the existence of gravity because objects fall. We measure the, 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 the objects falling and then we infer the existence of a field. By the way, Einstein said that that inference was actually incorrect that there isn't a, gra- a field so much as the bending of, of space-time, right? The objects still fall, but it's well, a different interpretation. The, well, the problem there is that then later in his life, Einstein basically disagreed with everything that was to become quantum physics. And basically, he just looked at all that and said, mm. Right, but that's, but that's missing the point that I'm trying to make. The point that I'm making is even in quantum physics, they still make an inference. If they, for example, try to measure the momentum and the position of a particle, and when they try to measure one, they can't measure the other, and, and vice versa. Now, based on that observation, they make an inference about, for example, the collapse of a wave function. The critical thing is it's an inference. 
Psychology is the same thing. I make an inference that I'm talking to a conscious human being right now. And I make that inference based on how you respond to my questions. I could be talking to a machine right now that wasn't conscious. So I have to be ever cleverer. I'd like to think Gene and I are a little more intelligent than a Turing test. Well, you certainly are coming across that way, let me tell you. <laughs> that does not compute. And I, compute. I hope, compute. And I, and I, compute. hope I am, too. I hope I am also. So let me we'll just see. finish the point. Right. You know, there's a metaphor. If something looks like a duck and it, it walks like a duck and it sounds like a duck and it smells like a duck, at some point we're willing to, to say, well, it's probably a duck. And so the approach that I take with survival research at this point in fact, one of the, the, the sound bites I use is that survival's in the details. That what you do is you start looking for to what extent does the information lead you to the conclusion that the information is alive, that it's intentional, that it's making decisions. Um, and if we had more time, if we did another show, uh, I could talk to you about a book that's sort of half written about what I call the intentional mind of the kind of experiments that lead one ever more strongly to the idea that this information uh, appears to be at least as alive as you and I are. All right, so there's a logical problem there. I'll say, well, David, before we mention what's illogical about it. Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting too for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, Go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Dr. Gary Schwartz, Ph.D. We're talking about the weird. And speaking of weird, David, what about that logical problem? Well, I, uh, I'm a big fan of Robert Anton Wilson. And I'm actually rereading right now Prometheus Rising. And really what he deals with are these topics where, you, you know, you, you, you've got these things called uh, hardware, your computer, your physiology. And then you've got the software that's flying around that is a collection not only of internal stimuli, but the results of all the external stimuli 
basically bearing down on us, bombarding us. And, you know, we talk about, Robert Anton Wilson talks about reality tunnels. And so when we, when we start talking about all of these topics, and, we, and, and by the way, Gary, just to, just to get right, right out of the way, a bunch of our listeners know that I personally have an extremely odd, very intense experience in this particular genre with my mother, who actually was able to, at least based on what I experienced, she was able to manifest physical energy from beyond and, right. and manipulate physicality for me specifically in answer to a question that I asked her. And, and those who know the, the show are familiar with the story. Um, and we don't necessarily want to go into all of that right now, but really quickly, uh, what's the possibility that all of these manifestations are potentially either being influenced by or even being generated by internal projection on the part of the person who so desperately wants to establish that contact and then actually does what my old buddy Dave Groom says, creates their own reality and literally has the ability to use psi energy to manipulate matter and to make something manifest. Maybe it's not what it appears to be. I mean, what's the possibility of that? Well, first of all, the, that is one of the possibilities you have to rule out. Okay. I was, you know, when I started working in this area over 10 years ago, that was one of the hypotheses and reasonable hypotheses that you had to put on the table. Okay. So mm -hmm. the question you should ask me is, why is it that I've come to the conclusion that that hypothesis is insufficient to account for all of the evidence? That's the question we need to ask. Like in your case, you may have wanted to hear from your mom, or you may have asked her a specific question, and then she appears to materialize, and she appears to give you... Well, no, she didn't materialize. She manipulated physical matter. But that's okay, a, she, and, okay, or she, you, would, you infer that she manipulated physical matter. But let me just finish the point. It's your sure. point is how do you know it was your mother or your own consciousness and intention and your energy that right. does it? And here's right. the answer. From that particular example that you just said, we don't know. The truth is it could have been you. It could have been your mother. We can't tell from that particular instance. But right. there are many instances where, and this is what I call them, anomalies within the research. Anomalies meaning that they're, if you would, you know, just levels of strangeness within um, these very strange experiments in the first place. I'll give you an example, uh, which I which I wrote about. It. I think I wrote about at least one book. Um, um, a woman volunteers to be a, a sitter in an experiment where she wishes to hear from her um, deceased mother. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is actually being, this particular demonstration is being filmed for a, a TV program, a local Arizona affiliate you know, station for one of the major networks. Right. And um, the medium is having difficulty getting information about the mother. But she starts getting information about another person and asks a few simple questions. And the, the sitter gets very upset. And what happens is that in terms of the person that the media, that the sitter wanted to hear from, really was desperately wanting to hear from, the medium essentially failed. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. she started getting information that couldn't, that the medium wouldn't allow to be recorded. So what they did was they turned off the, the, the TV, the TV recording. We all left the room. And then the medium had um, a conversation with the sitter. And she ended up leaving the room in tears. And so, of course, I then asked the medium if it was all right if I actually spoke with this person. I mean, I'm the person responsible for all of this. And she said, of course. So I, I took the uh, sitter outside, 
and asked her, would she be willing to share, you know, off the record? And, of course, all this is off the record. You don't, I'm making things so there's no way that you could identify who this person was. And what she explained was that a person that she did not expect to come through and did not want to come through turned out to have been um, her stepfather, who um, had actually uh, physically abused her mother. And this stepfather was coming through and literally was asking for her forgiveness. Hmm. Now, here's a case where the sitter wants to hear from someone, person A, never expects person C to show up. I mean, because there are other people in between that would have, she would have been more likely to clear. Who come, and the, and the medium can't get information about person A because they're being distracted by person C, who has, appears to have a very strong intention to communicate with the sitter. See, that's very hard to explain as being caused by. If, if you did, what you'd have to do is to say is, well, what happened is that this person was unconsciously wishing to hear from the, the stepfather, and um, the medium was somehow ignoring what the, the conscious mind of the, of the sitter and mm-hmm. bringing up the unconscious. Now, of course, that's not impossible. But all I'm trying to share with you is it's not your simple explanation of, I want it to happen and therefore it happens. Right. Um, there are many examples of that is what I'm sharing with you. That's why when I, I say, when I look at the totality of all the data that I've witnessed, and as I said, if we had time, I could take you through some really wonderful examples. Well, um, and even a double blind study that we did which is very hard to explain in any other way except that. But that's a 15 or 20 minute story. Right. We don't have time for that now. So here's the thing, Gary. Um, you know, we have a really great listening audience. Our, our listeners are really astute. And they're. They would a have lot to of, be, otherwise, you wouldn't be asking these kinds of questions. Well, I don't think you're going to like the next question, though. That's the problem. Please. Um, well, here's the thing. So one of our listeners found out you're going to be on the show. We posted a little thing on the, on the forum saying, hey, Gary Schwartz is going to be on. We're really psyched about this. One of our listeners sent, sent me an email and said, you need to look into some things about this fellow if you're going to have him on the show. And um, anybody who listens to the Paracast knows that I am not a fan of the Fox network. I do not like what they do. And not that he's ever come up on the show, but I'm, I can't say I'm a huge fan of Geraldo. I, I can't say that I am, and I'm not. So I want to preface the following question by getting that out of the way. I'm not a big fan of what they do on Fox, and I don't think much of a lot of the people who are on there. But there is a piece on there that one of our listeners sent to me, and I watched it. And we like the conversation with, we're having with you. I'll speak for Gene and myself. And I personally found it to be a little disturbing. And I want to give you a chance. I know we don't have much time left, and we're going to want to have you back, okay? But there is a story about this guy, Michael Knopf, and his son. And there are some things in the portrayal of the story on this little little clip on YouTube. Again, you know, the Internet, it's hard to... Sure. It's hard to, to have another life on the internet because, you know, like Gene and I are now both known as saucer tards. Uh, so we have to sort of deal with that on a day to day basis. But Gary, here's the thing. Uh, in watching that clip about the situation with this guy and his son and what appears to be your involvement, and we want to, we'd like to have an insight into that. There are some accusations made on this show that are very disturbing for obvious No question about it. In fact, if I had been watching that show and I didn't know the truth behind it, I would have been appalled by that scientist that they described uh, called Dr. Gary Schwartz. So what you'd really like to know is how much of what was communicated in that show 
was accurate. I'm that's going to actually oh, right, right. That's the basic that, question. I mean, the bottom line is what in this is true and what's not, and how was it twisted by the by the the, the Geraldo organization, which, as you know, they like to sensationalize and take things out of context. Sure. So let me give you a simple example. Okay. Okay. This is one trivial example. All right. The show made it sound as if I was asking for more than three million dollars, some multi-million dollars. Three point three million, I think, yeah, was the number. Whatever they, they said. Um, right. As a result of this, of uh, my relationship um, in in having met with this particular gentleman. Okay. Mm-hmm. And right. that somehow this was, uh, what's the word that I'm searching for? This was unseemly. Right. But here's the truth. The truth is that this particular gentleman who approached me, I did not approach him who had read the Afterlife Experiments book and was extremely impressed by it and then had a reading with um, with one of the mediums that I had tested and it had been an extraordinarily positive reading. He called me and claimed that he was a very wealthy man. In fact, he even claimed that he owned a medical school or co-owned a medical school in the Caribbean. I had never met anybody who owned or co-owned a medical school. And he said he wanted to do something significant for the field. And one of the things that I suggested to him was that if he really was that affluent and he really wanted to make a difference, that what he could do is create an endowed professorship at some university, which could have included the University of Arizona, but that he could endow a professorship that would give credibility to this field and would allow this faculty person to devote their energy and their research to this field. Now, do you know what an endowed professorship costs at a place like Harvard or Yale? Probably a few bucks. A few million dollars. That is what was proposed to Mr. Noth. Now, when you hear that story, does that sound like I'm doing anything unseemly? Of course not. I'm just sharing normal academic professorships, and endowed chairs are created all the time. So this is not the impression. That was not the impression. This sounds like you were personally asking him for over a few million dollars. Like that's, what they, that's, what, that's what they made it sound like. I was not right. personally asking for him. I was saying, if he wants to make a difference, this is what he could do. Sure. And by the way, if he wanted to give that endowed professorship to me, I would have been very happy to uh, accept it. I would love to have be able to spend significant time doing research in this field. But I wasn't asking for me personally. It's an endowed chair going to a university. They didn't say that. Okay. Or we hear another story of a medium who makes a claim that the reason that she uh, that she questioned by ethics, you'll probably remember that. Yeah. But what was not communicated was that because we were having difficulty, literally, with um, some of the ethics of the mediums that were involved, we created much higher standards for mediums to participate in research. We actually created a nine-step uh, testing procedure, which, by the way, included the requirement that not only would mediums have to be tested and also take an ethics exam, but they literally had to do the same NIH federal requirement of taking the human um, protection tests that we investigators are required to do. In other words, we made it a lot more difficult. And what we said was we would not grandfather in any of the old mediums because we wanted whatever mediums were going to be doing continuing to do research in this uh, lab to represent the highest standards. Well, you want to know something? Some mediums chose that they didn't want to. They didn't want to have to take those tests. And uh, what would have happened is 
they would have literally had been let go as a result of this uh, procedure. And so, so what some of them did, you know, I would have done this if I were in their shoes too. Resign. They, quote, resigned rather than admit that we were increasing the ethical standards and we created what we called actually integrative research mediums. Let me ask you a quick question here because we don't have a lot of time left. Okay, sure. did you get in touch or make an attempt to get in touch with Fox News or Geraldo Rivera or anyone connected with that show to explain to them what was going on? Uh, the answer is actually yes, but what's amusing is that they claim that they tried to contact me, right, to get comment. Right. However, it just so happened that I uh, and my wife were both out of town that weekend. They apparently called on Friday night. No, it was re- it was released on a Saturday night. They called on Friday night, and this was after my office hours were closed, that is at the university, and left a message asking for a comment. They also called on apparently late Friday night, and I was away for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Now, if they really wanted a comment, wouldn't they have wow. called earlier in the week? Sure. So that, so, but if, if they really wanted it. So what they did was... Sure, they asked for a comment after they had finished it, but it wasn't received until my staff was gone for the weekend, and I happened to have not been there. When I came back on Sunday night, I found this message from Fox, which had been left on a Friday night, saying, uh, you know, we're doing this spot on you on uh, Saturday. Would you like to call and make a comment? That's what happened. Now, do they tell you that story? No. So this show was, you know how you can twist facts? and do something that almost a smear. Well, that's what they did. Hmm. Did you ask them maybe to follow up with your comments on a future episode or what? I was actually recommended by an attorney who I then hired because this borders on slander, that um, this was not the forum. Since I could not trust them to have told the truth in the first place, I had no way of being able to guarantee that they wouldn't have uh, misused my statements since they misused the, the previous statements. So, you know, once you've discovered that someone is behaving in irresponsible and unethical fashion, you don't go back to that same forum and hope that they're going to be fair. And as you know, that show does not have a, is not highly regarded as an evidence-based newscast. Anyway, thank you very much for the explanation. Tell our listeners about your books that cover the weird, so if they want to check things out, they can do that. Sure. Um, Again, just remember, when I use the word weird, I use it in the sense that quantum physicists use the word weird. We like weird. You like weird? Okay. Weird is my middle name. I've said that Weird is your middle name? Okay, then I feel I'm among friends. Um, The most recent book is a book called The Energy Healing Experiments, the foreword was actually written by the former uh, Surgeon General of the United States. And this is a book that reviews um, basic science and applied science that looks at the question of is energy healing and also healing related to consciousness, is it possibly real? Um, and much of that work was actually funded by, by the National Institutes of Health, the National Center for Complementary Alternative Medicine. Um, and I'm actually quite proud of that book because it presents in a very clear language a whole slew of uh, experiments that speak to this kind of question. Is there a website I, our listeners can yeah, go there's to a website, more information? Yeah, there's a website, personal website, which is drgaryschwartz.com. That's D-R-G-A-R-Y-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z.com, which is a personal website that includes all the books and so on. And then we have a, a website um, which you can get to from that website for my laboratory at the University of Arizona. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll have the link to drgaryschwartz.com 
so that our listeners can check out more of what you do. Thank you so much for joining us this week on The Paracast. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. Thank you.